Well, good morning. Uh, this morning we are jumping back into our series, Joy in All Circumstances. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn over to Philippians chapter 1. I've heard it said on a number of occasions that when you're raising small children, the days are long, but the years are short. And as a parent of three kids under seven, I can attest that truer words have never been spoken. And this is absolutely 100% accurate. When you're raising young kids, the days are long. You know, some nights when my head hits the pillow, I feel like my body feels like I've just finished running a half marathon and my brain feels like I've just finished taking the SATs because many of the days are full of turmoil and, and drama and frustration. There are battles about the rules of games. There are arguments about TV selections. There are disagreements about items on the dinner menu. There are complaints about homework. There are grievances about bedtime. And if all that wasn't enough, on top of all that, there are pouting lips, rolling eyes, sassy tones, disrespectful attitudes, and, and, and yet, even though the days are long, it's also true that the years are short. In the midst of all of the chaos, there are these sobering moments where you realize that time is moving very quickly. There, there are these moments where I stumble across a, a toy in the garage or find a drawing in a drawer, or look at an ornament on the Christmas tree, or look through an old photo album, and I realize time is flying by, and I can't do anything to slow it down. So I fight through the long days because I'm keenly aware of the short years. You know, Every day, Lacey and I do everything in our power to shape, mold, correct, instruct, inform, and disciple our children in the ways of the Lord because we understand their 18th birthdays are just around the corner. Before we know it, we'll be sending each of them out into the real world. I mean, again, the years are short. At my previous church, our, our children's ministry had an illustration for this. They, they would give new parents uh, a glass jar with 936 marbles in it. And each marble represented one of the 936 weeks that their child would live from birth to high school graduation. And this simple picture would, would always create a genuine sense of urgency for new parents and old parents alike. Lacey and I understand as, as, as many young parents do, that in a very real way, everything we're doing right now is preparing our children for everything they will face later. And sometimes the weight of that reality is overwhelming. I'd even say crushing at times. In 1995, a family psychologist named John Rosemond wrote a book called A Family of Value, where he contended for a return to a fundamental goal of teaching moral values to the next generation. Much like the education system 
has the three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic. Rosemond believed in practicing three R's in the home, too. He argued for raising children to be respectful, responsible, and resourceful. And on a, a basic level, this, this ethical foundation does support the development of, of future good citizens. And, and certainly, if most of our nation would adhere to these three R's, then all of our nation would be a much better place. So I don't take any issue with Rosemond's list. You know, I, I hope my children are good citizens. I expect them to be res respectful towards others and responsible with their words and actions and resourceful through all the highs and lows of, of life. So I don't have a problem with Rosemond's list. I would just add a fourth R. That along with being respectful, responsible, and resourceful, I hope my children are righteous too. I hope they look like Christ. They're not, not a two-faced, hypocritical righteousness, not a legalistic, works-driven righteousness. My hope for them is the same as Paul's hope for the Philippians at the end of chapter 1. I hope they trust Christ. I hope they follow Christ. I hope they treasure Christ. I hope they cling to Christ always. Or as Paul puts it very simply in, in verse 27, I hope they live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so let's read from verse 27 to 30 together. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had now and hear that I still have. So this morning we're, we're entering into a new section of Paul's letter to the first century church in, in Philippi. Most commentators and, and scholars mark verse 26 as the end of Paul's introductory remarks in verse 27 as the start of the body of his letter. But even though we should view our text as the beginning of a new section, we shouldn't disconnect it from the preceding verses. You may remember where we were a few weeks ago in the previous section the Apostle Paul writes one of his most famous statements, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As, as, he, as he considered his situation, sitting in a, a Roman prison cell, uh, he, he basically said he was, he was content with either one of those options. And he was, he was visibly torn between continuing on earth or, or going to be with Christ in heaven. He was, he was resting in God's sovereignty uh, but, he, but he was torn about which way he should go. He had, had two options in front of him. He even says in verses 23 and 24, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My, my, my desire 
is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So that, that's his dilemma right there. Departing is better for him, but staying is better for the Philippians. So he's essentially saying, Philippians, if I, if I leave this nasty, cold, depressing Roman jail cell and go to Christ, it would be far better for me, but if I stay, if I keep advancing the kingdom, if I keep preaching, writing letters, planning churches, and discipling the next generation of leaders, if I keep sharing the gospel with this revolving door of Roman guards who are chained to me every day, if I keep pouring myself out like a drink offering, it'll be better for you. And once Paul frames his dilemma that way, we can kind of sense which way he's leaning. And, and verses 25 and 26 confirms it for us. He says, convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, as we said, Paul was resting in God's sovereign plan. He was happy to stay. He was happy to go. He was content in either situation, but ultimately he was praying a little bit more. He was hoping a little bit more that God would allow him to do a little bit more ministry. And so after his lengthy internal monologue centered on this question, should I stay or should I go, Paul expresses his primary concern for Philippians in verse 27. He writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, so Paul is saying to his beloved church in Philippi, I'm willing to postpone heaven for one reason, only one reason. I will stick around. I will stay a little longer because I want to assist each of you in living in a manner worthy of the Lord. In the original language, the verb for let your manner of life or, or conduct yourself, as some translations have it, means to live as a citizen of a country in a law-abiding manner. And as Gordon, uh, commentator Gordon Fee points out, Paul's making a play on their dual citizenship. That the Philippians are citizens of the empire by virtue of their residence in Philippi, and they're also citizens of heaven by virtue of their faith in Christ. And so the implication here is, is how we live should be consistent with what we believe and who we represent. That if you're in Christ, you're a citizen of heaven, and that comes with certain rights and privileges, but it also comes with certain rules and requirements. And so our, our primary question for today is this. What does it look like to live as a good citizen of heaven on earth? And in these verses, the Apostle Paul provides four answers for us. Let's, let's look at them together. Number one, good citizens stand on truth. Good citizens stand on truth. Over the last several weeks, we, we've already seen that Paul had a special love and, and admiration for the church in Philippi. They seem to be one of the more spiritually mature, supportive churches in the New Testament. But Paul also understood 
that even the most faithful church was still in danger of slipping into indifference or confusion or theological error. And so much of the work that he's doing in the book of Philippians is to, to stay ahead of any potential issues. That's why he's urging them in verse 27, stand firm in one spirit. Some of you may have seen the movie 300, or, or you may have read the historical account which inspired the movie 300. Either way, if you're familiar with the story, then you're familiar with one of history's most famous last stands. In 480 BC, an alliance of, of Greek city-states led by King Leonidas of Sparta and his 300 Spartans fought against a massive Persian army. And since they were vastly outnumbered, they brought the fight into a small passage in central Greece. And they held back the Persians for three days. And so when Paul uses this phrase, stand firm, he's calling for a similar level of commitment. He's saying as the, word, as the world shifts further and further away from the truth, the church must have more resolve to stand firm on the truth. We can't budge, we can't move, we can't give an inch. And in the coming years, Standing firm on the truth is going to become an increasingly countercultural position. Because in our society, the most valuable truth is your truth. The world is, is moving towards this place where it says, You're right. Listen, you're right. Whatever you believe, whatever you think, whatever you hold most dear, you're right. And no one should ever challenge you because you're right. And we see this in the way that the world views different religions. Much of the world says that, the, that, that, that man's relationship with religion can be explained by an old Indian parable about six blind men and an elephant. And you may not have heard this before, but once you hear it, you'll, you'll see what I mean. The story goes that, that six blind men were asked to determine what an elephant was by feeling different parts of its body. And so the first blind man feels a leg and says, oh, it's a tree. Second blind man feels the tail and says, no, it's a, it's a rope. Third man feels the trunk, it's a snake. Fourth man feels the ear, it's a fan. Fifth man feels the belly, it's a wall. Sixth man feels the trunk, it's a spear. So the, the, the moral of this parable is that humans have a tendency to claim absolute truth based on their limited subjective experiences. And that they will ignore other people's limited subjective experiences, which may be equally true. And so it's this idea that, that, that everyone's getting a piece of the puzzle. Everyone's got their path that's leading to the same mountaintop. Everyone's floating down their river, which is going to the same ocean. But here's the problem with this analogy about six blind men and an elephant. The whole analogy breaks down if the elephant speaks, if the elephant says, hey, 
stop touching me. I'm an elephant. Because if that happens, all six blind men are instantly moved to the same page. They are without an excuse because the elephant is telling you he's an elephant. And so can you see that our relationship with God functions in the same way? As we search for the meaning of life, I mean, we can feel around in the dark, we can grab and and tug and pull, we can read philosophers, we can work on piecing together this unsolvable mystery that is life, or we can take God at his word. And we can stand firm on his word. Because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So number one, good citizens stand on truth. Number two, good citizens strive for discipleship. At the end of verse 27, Paul encourages the Philippians to continue striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The phrase striving side by side conveys this picture of of teamwork. A few days ago, I discovered a 10-minute video on YouTube that showcased all the highs of the Atlanta Braves' playoff run. And I watched all 10 minutes of it. And I'd seen all these highlights before. I watched almost every inning of the, the three playoff series, but... One thing struck me as I rewatched all the important moments, and it was how many different players contributed to the Braves winning the World Series. It wasn't one picture, pitcher who dominated over the course of several games. It wasn't one position player who was hot at the right time. It was the entire team. It was Jock Peterson and Freddie Freeman hitting game-winning home runs against the Brewers, it was Eddie Rosario catching fire at the plate and Tyler Matzik pitching lights out on the mound against the Dodgers. And then in the World Series, it was Max Fried and Ian Anderson throwing gems. It was Dansby Swanson and Ozzie Albies playing gold glove defense. It was Jorge Soler smashing baseballs into orbit. And from the top to the bottom of the roster, everyone contributed. Well, maybe not Luke Jackson, but but everyone else played a role. And in a, sim- in a similar way, as the church, we are called into the same kind of collective effort where our discipleship should be focused on two things, protecting and proclaiming the truth. As, as protectors of the truth, we pursue holiness together. See, Paul moves effortlessly from saying, hey, stand firm on the truth, And also strive towards living out the truth. He sees no contradiction in doing that. And we must understand the relationship between faith and works here because the core message of the gospel is God did something. God did something for you. God sent Christ. God crushed sin and death. God established the church. And one day God will return and create a new heaven and new earth The end. And you may push back and say, but pastor, I'm part of the story. I believed in God. I I trusted in Christ. I I played a part in my salvation. And, And I would agree with you. Human responsibility 
is, is part of the equation. But you're not the hero of the story. You're not the hero of the story. If you're in Christ, when you receive salvation from God, you accepted a free gift from God, which was accomplished entirely by Him. And so this is why the Apostle Paul sees no contradiction in declaring the gospel and turning around and saying, now go out and live in a manner worthy of that gospel. I love how Ligon Duncan explains Paul's logic. He writes, this isn't a contradiction of grace. This is the very purpose of grace. God desires that we would experience joy in our obedience. And Satan will tempt us. Satan will whisper in our ear, Here, here's your choice, obedience or pleasure. God's offering you this, this gloomy obedience. I'm offering you this, this wonderful, glorious pleasure, this easy pleasure. But God retorts that there's no easy pleasure. There's, there's no such thing. There's only joyful obedience. Paul is reminding us that glorifying God and enjoying God are not mutually exclusive. They are two different things, but they are two sides of the same coin. And so as protectors of truth, we pursue holiness together. And also as proclaimers of truth, we preach Christ together. Discipleship should always have a rinse and repeat element to it. As we say it sometimes on, on Sundays, you grow in the gospel. On Monday, you go with the gospel. And I understand you may not see yourself as a proclaimer of the truth. You may say, I, I'm not a teacher. I'm not an evangelist. I'm certainly not a preacher. I don't even know how to begin sharing the gospel. And if that's you, you're not alone in that. Many Christians struggle with personal evangelism. As we've discussed before, two of the greatest roadblocks standing in our way when it comes to sharing our faith are anxiety and apathy. Some Christians are, are filled with anxiety over this, this, this crushing burden to convert others. And as a result, they are consumed over the outcome. They make this incorrect assumption that their presentation of the gospel is make or break. That it has to be perfect. That they can't say anything wrong. That they have to have an answer to every question. And they, they wilt under the pressure. But worse than that, other Christians are filled with apathy. They genuinely don't care about the plight of others. Through direct or indirect actions, they prove unconcerned about the eternal destination of those around them. We see this in the book of Jonah. The reluctant prophet shows his colors at the end of that, that last chapter, his, his selfishness crowded out his ability to show love for others. He was unconcerned about the implications of salvation for, for anyone other than himself and his people. But God told Jonah to go, and Jonah said no. 
He didn't speak it audibly back to God, but we saw it in his actions as he runs away. And so whether you struggle with anxiety or apathy, here's the hard truth about proclaiming the truth. You're still called to proclaim the truth. Once you're saved, you're you're sent. And to take a little bit of pressure off you, most of the time, God's charge for you doesn't involve preaching on a street corner or or sharing three circles with a stranger in the target line or, or moving to Africa and engaging a small village with the gospel. I mean, sometimes it does, but most of the time, when you see the gospel move forward in your life, it's going to happen around your dinner table. It's going to happen in your office. It's going to happen at your favorite coffee shop. It's going to happen at your gym. Listen, you you have to realize that God has, has placed a person or two in your life that I will never be able to get through to. You may have this picture in your head, okay, well, if I can just get them to church, if I can get them to have lunch with Pastor Bo or one of the deacons, that they can talk to them and they'll hear the gospel. And listen, that may work, but it may not. Some of your friends, some of your family, some of your coworkers. are waiting to hear the gospel from you. So don't be overwhelmed with the task. Just minister to those who are right in front of you. That's all God's asking you to do. Let's move to number three. Good citizens struggle with spiritual warfare. Verse 28, Paul urges the Philippians to avoid being frightened by their opponents. Because of the relatively small Jewish population in Philippi, we can rule out that the the Judaizers had anything to do with causing trouble in the church at Philippi. More than likely, their, their pagan neighbors or perhaps even the Roman authorities at this point were bullying them. They're the ones that were persecuting them. And, you know, one of the more ironic footnotes in, of early church history is that most Roman citizens referred to Christians as atheists because they didn't believe in, in all of the Roman gods. While the, the Romans believed in this pantheon full of gods, the Christians only believed in one god who you couldn't see, hear, or touch. Now, there's this well-known story about the martyrdom of a second century bishop named Polycorp who was charged with refusing to sacrifice to the Roman gods and bend his knee to the emperor. And so they sentenced him to be burnt at the stake in front of an arena of people. And just before they prepared to light the fire, the Roman governor offered him one more chance. He urged him, Polycorp, repent and say, away with the atheist. But Polycorp was unfazed. And he sarcastically waves his hand at the crowd and says, away with the atheist. 
and they didn't think that was very funny. Um, and you know, for some of the Philippians, their faith would be tested in similar ways under the harsh rule of, of several Roman emperors. But Paul encouraged them, even in that, don't be frightened. And more than likely, even still, despite some of the alarmist things that you hear, your faith will never be tested on a burning stake like Polycorp or in prison like Paul. But, but still, you will be tested in a variety of ways. And when you are, don't be frightened. Don't be intimidated. Don't be overwhelmed. Look at what Paul says next. This is a clear sign. This is a clear sign. This is a two-way sign. When you're persecuted, it's a, a double sign. It's a sign of their destruction and of your salvation. When your opponents oppose you because they oppose the gospel, it's a clear sign of their ultimate destruction. And also on the other side, it's a clear sign of your ultimate salvation. And I know it's really hard for us when we're being persecuted, when, when we're suffering, to, to look up in the midst of those, those really difficult circumstances. But Paul is, is urging us, he is encouraging us, he's exhorting us to just look up to the Lord and remember that we're on the winning team. Paul's saying today might be terrible, but tomorrow will be better. The future is secure. I mean, just think about church history for another moment. You know, the Roman Empire did everything in their power to crush the Jesus movement. They threatened them. They, they slandered them. They killed them in horrific ways. They believed their opposition would destroy this small atheist movement, but it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Instead, the empire fell and the church grew. And so when you face persecution for your faith, remember how the story ends. You know how the story ends. And let's look at one more point. Finally, good citizens suffer with hope. Verses 29 and 30, Paul says, For it's been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So we understand that salvation is a gift of God. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 clearly explains, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, this is a gift of God not a result of work, so that no one may boast. But notice what Paul says right here. He says, it's been granted to you, or, or more precisely, it's been graced to you, it's been given to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So, so therefore, we must realize that, 
salvation is a gift of God, but suffering is also a gift of God. But if we're honest, if we're honest, we have a hard time putting those two things into the same category. We see salvation as this all expenses paid vacation to a five-star resort, and we see suffering as a punch to the gut, a, a kick in the teeth, stepping on a Lego. We, 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 we can't put these things under the same umbrella. And we see this disconnect based on how we, we handle them often in the local church, how they're framed in the local church. And we put salvation front and center. And rightfully so, we should put salvation front and center. At some point, we should bring every conversation, every youth Sunday school lesson, every children's church discussion, every Bible study, every sermon back to the gospel. But at the same time, we can't sweep suffering under the rug. We must avoid two dangerous misunderstandings about suffering which are running rampant in larger culture. You know, some blame God for suffering. When a hurricane hammers the coast, when a tornado levels a Midwestern town, when a bridge collapses in a major city, they, they shake their fists at God. How could you allow this to happen? Why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you do something? If you're truly all-powerful, then why are you sitting on your hands as countless people suffer? In their view, suffering is inherently Wrong, and so God must give an account. And then others excuse God for suffering. We see this often in the prosperity gospel and word of faith movements. Both are built on the foundation of one faulty premise. They preach, if you trust God with everything, then you'll be blessed in every way. If you trust God with everything, you'll be blessed in every way. God wants you to prosper. God wants you to thrive. God wants you to be happy all the time. God would never make you suffer. And it sounds good, but it's just not true. We can see a clear hole in their logic. I mean, even if you've lived a blessed experience, even if you've lived a near perfect, easy life, even if you've not personally dealt with much suffering at all, you can still look around and see so much suffering in our world. Our broken world is full of suffering, and God's people are not immune to it. We grieve tragic losses. We deal with relational strife. We receive terrible medical reports. We lose comfortable jobs. We wrestle with anxiety, fear, worry, and depression. So this idea that if you trust God, you won't suffer. It's just not true. It's a lie. And I think a lot of these false teachers know it isn't true. Because somewhere along the way, they build a safeguard into their theology. Their response to the overwhelming nature of suffering inside and outside the church is, hey, listen, you know, if you're experiencing suffering, then it's because you don't have enough faith. 
you had more faith, you wouldn't suffer. Which is a sick, twisted, disgusting, abhorrent, heretical teaching. That moves hurting people further away from a healing Savior. Because they hear that teaching and then they apply it to their lives and say, well, I guess I'm not good enough. If I had more faith, if I had more trust, if I had more discipline, then, then God would remove my burden, but my cancer is still growing, my divorce is still being finalized, my friend is still estranged. So I guess I should just give up. I hope you can see how both of these warped views on suffering produce the same result. They drive well-intentioned people away from God. So listen, if you want to finish the race, if you want to see revival, then you must grow in your understanding of suffering. If you look at, at Peter's story in the Gospels, you see him grow in this area. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus tells the disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And he'll be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he'll be killed and after three days rise again. And then Mark records this in, in verse 32. It says, Peter took Christ aside and began to rebuke him. He took Jesus to the side and began to rebuke him. By the way, this is never a good idea in any situation. So he pulls Jesus away from the other disciples and says, look, I, I know that you're the Christ. I know you're the Son of God. I know you're the Savior of the world. But with all due respect, you can't be serious about dying at the hands of those legalistic jerks in Jerusalem. Early in their relationship, Peter understood who Jesus was and why Jesus came. He didn't understand the how yet. He knew Jesus was going to save the world. He didn't know how yet. And it certainly wasn't going to be the way that that Christ was describing. And then so you fast forward to John 21. After, after the Last Supper, after the, the, the high priestly prayer, after Peter denied Christ three times, after Peter disappeared into the night, and after Jesus rose from the grave, Jesus met Peter, and they had breakfast together. And Jesus brought Peter face to face with his most egregious sin so he could own it and move past it. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus tells Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. And then we get this, this footnote from John. He says, This he said, to show what kind of death 
he was going, what kind of death he was going to die to glorify God. See, Christ foretold Peter's death by crucifixion. He was letting him know, Peter, one day you'll have the courage to die for me. I know you just got finished denying me three times and running into the night, but one day you're going to have the courage to die to me. Die for me. You're going to have the courage and the boldness to preach at Pentecost. You're going to share the gospel in front of the Sanhedrin. You're going to heal the sick and the lame. You're going to establish the church in Jerusalem. You're going to see God's Spirit poured out. But one day, you will stretch out your hands and you will be nailed to the cross. Peter, you will glorify me with your life, but you will especially glorify me with your death. And Peter did. In Mark 8, Peter's gospel didn't have a cross in it. He couldn't see how Christ's suffering would bring glory to God. But in John 21, as he's experiencing the forgiveness, the grace, and the mercy that could only be afforded to him through the cross of Christ, he started to understand firsthand how suffering can bring glory to God. And from that day forward, Peter became the rock of the early church. He led courageously. He witnessed boldly. He suffered willingly. And in the end, he died enthusiastically. When you live as a citizen of heaven, you don't rise or fall based on the circumstances of earth. Because your joy rests in the finished work of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, it's so easy for us to examine a text like this that, that has really straightforward commands. It's really easy for us to take this and look at it and say, okay, I need to do this and I shouldn't do this and, and kind of just slide right into uh, some sort of legalistic interpretation of the text. So Lord, help us to see that, that Paul tells us to live in a, a manner worthy of the Lord worthy of, of the gospel and that our only hope of doing that is, is leaning deeper and deeper into relationship with you. That the power that saves us is the same power that sends us and sustains us. That you took care of our justification and you drive our sanctification. So Lord, just help us to, to rest in you. Help us to take those, those little steps each day to look more and more like Christ. Help us to stand on truth. Help us to strive in discipleship. Help us to, to suffer with hope. Help us to struggle and spiritual warfare. Help us to run the race and help us to run it well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.